This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Today's Paddock Pass podcast is a somber podcast. We're Adam Wheelerless, and rumor has it that Adam's been struck down by a vengeful god for never referring to Aston as the cathedral. David Amos, <laughs> rules are rules. Assen is the cathedral, and we don't have Adam, so it's pretty clear that we're going to spend the entire hour-long Paddock Pass podcast looking back at the Dutch CT by constantly referring to the cathedral. Uh, well, yes, obviously. I mean, there are no lengths to which Adam Wheeler will go to avoid being on a podcast where we talk about the cathedral, um, despite us continually throughout the uh, note show over the weekend referring to the cathedral uh, and also continually bombarding him with pictures of the cathedral. So um, it was great. And genuinely, like we had three fantastic races. So I don't know what he's complaining about because it was, I mean, absolutely worth it. It seems like someone who works at the TT Circuit Assen was actually listening to some of our podcasts because this year they had printed out a beautiful big picture of a cathedral and hung it on the bridge going into the track which said welcome to the cathedral so i mean i mean could work tt circuit Assen. you uh basically are i think uh, allowed to have a free paddock press podcast uh, patreon subscription for that one I think also, um, uh, I saw someone tweet is saying, why have you got a picture of the, I think, is it the Dom, the one in, um, uh, the one in Milan? Because uh, it's, it's the cathedral of, Mer it's, it's the cathedral in Milan that they, uh, that they printed out. So they're like, well, you know, why have you printed that one out? So, um, uh, because there aren't actually, actually any cathedrals in the Netherlands, but, um, uh, there you go. Apart from, you know, the cathedral. The cathedral. But I was going to say, Neil, Morrison, you probably could have done with finding a cathedral on uh, your trip home because no doubt it, it seemed a little bit stressful for you. So you were probably trying to pray a fair few times in that queue to make sure your flight was going to be on time. Yeah, all I can or say you'd is be on the... time for the flight. <laughs> I know. I was there four hours before Steve, um, which is a surprise to I think everyone in the world, including you two, um, given my uh, my track record for turning up to this show on time. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say. Basically spending four days um, rooming with uh, our good colleague there, David Emmett, uh, in some uh, Dutch accommodation. Even that was in no way. Now it makes sense why you arrived at the airport so early, Chipotle. actually, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, even that, even the horrors of that didn't prepare me for what awaited at the airport yesterday. So um, yes, anyone traveling in and out of Amsterdam at the moment, you have my utmost uh, sympathy. I actually have a question for both of you because... This is something that's always intrigued me about Assen, whether it's whenever I've gone for superbikes or whenever you go for the GP or just people going to Holland in general, or sorry, the Netherlands in general, Dave. What is the obsession with Chocomel? It, it, it's not <laughs> nice at all. Neil, what about you? Like, Can you offer any light on the subject? Um, I, I don't like Chocomel, although I don't, I don't think I've tried it, actually. Um, it just seems like a very sickly <laughs> sweet drink, and I'm not big on i'm not big on sugar so i've just stayed clear of it but i am told that it's just basically chocolate milk in a can so um i mean if you're maybe five years old that 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 thing kind of works but oh, it is it's literally just a sweetened chocolate milk in a in a can and you know it's entirely it's entirely pleasant um it's nothing nothing to write home about but i suppose if you are sort of devoid of uh, uh if you've been deprived of 
chocolate milk and a sweetened chocolate milk in a can, then yeah, it, it, it might be a big thing. Um, I have, I mean, I don't know what the fuss is about because I have unlimited access to as much chocomel as I could pour over my naked body. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> well, on, on that note, I'm going to move the co- topic of conversation on from uh, Chocomel and uh, say a big thank you to Rental Street and Fly Racing for supporting our podcast as normal. We've also got an interview with Brad Binder as part of our Rental Street session, so we'll have that later on in the show. And uh, Neil, let's to totally move the topic on, let's go straight into actually some of the big news from the weekend because this will be my topic of conversation for later in the show but I think we'll just kick kick off the show with it and it's the rider market news because there was quite a quite a bit of bit of confirmations and bit of rumors around the paddock at the weekend but it looks like the rider grid for next year is really starting to take shape it does indeed Steve yes I mean uh, we had the confirmation that Alex Marquez will make a bit of a surprise switch to uh, Grissini Ducati uh, where he'll be taking over in a Bastianini space alongside Fabio De Gian Antonio but then um, it seemed that the futures of Alex Rins, Joanne Mayer, uh, Miguel Oliveira, um, even maybe Remy Gardner, Joanne Zarco, all of these guys seemed to have a kind of a, a clear way uh, set out uh, in front of them. So we didn't have full confirmation of what they'll be doing um, next year, but I think we can uh, we can have a, a firm idea of what uh, each rider, each of those riders is doing in 2023. And we'll probably be hearing some kind of confirmation in the, the summer break. Dave, just before we kind of look at some of the, the rumoured stories, I just want to get your thoughts on on Marquez going to Grassini. It's going to be quite interesting to see what he does on a different bike compared to the Honda. Uh, absolutely. Also, because um, uh, Ducati tried to uh, get uh, Alex Marquez before while he was still in Moto2. Uh, uh, I think there were talks going on there. Um, and it was only really... The uh, premature retirement of Jorge Lorenzo, which meant that that he ended up at Honda. Um, If Lorenzo had uh, kept riding, or if uh, even if um, even if uh, Lorenzo had sort of retired or announced his retirement much much earlier, then I think it would have been a different conversation. You know, he he sort of accidentally ended up on a Honda. Um, It's going to be interesting to see what happens because I think. I, I I think he will suit the Ducati. The Ducati is a, a fantastic motorcycle right now. And, uh, you know, what did we see? We saw, uh, you know, we saw Bezecchi get, uh, get on a podium. Um, uh, we've seen Di Gian Antonio get on a, uh, get on the front row. Uh, we've seen all the rookies adapt really well. We've seen lots of different. Uh, Ducati riders succeed so yeah you'd have to say he's going to have a chance to really sort of show what he's capable of Um, uh, his seat is vacated uh, uh, his seat at LCR has been vacated and Alex Rins was saying on Sunday night more or less um, yes I am going to uh, LCR Honda, but uh, but I haven't signed a contract yet. Uh, his reasoning for that is, is because he wants to be on a uh, um, he wants to be on a 2023 bike. This is, I mean, it, it seems a little bit odd to me because it, it, if there is a uh, if there's a bike which doesn't really, which you wouldn't think would suit Alex Rins's style, uh, you know, style uh, Rins is a very smooth, sweeping rider, uh, and yet he's going to get on uh, on the Honda, which really doesn't suit that at all. So I, I really don't see how that's 
how that's going to work out. Yeah, I'm personally quite surprised that Rins is looking as though he's edging towards a Honda. I thought the, uh, the kind of Aprilia in its current, um, yeah, how it currently is, looks like it would be absolutely suited to him. Um, and we know that there was a space, uh, two spaces in the RNF Aprilia squad going. So um, it does seem that the promise of, um, uh, well, I don't know. It, obviously, they decided to look elsewhere, but um, I, I can't see rins merging with that honda smoothly unless it has a complete overhaul again so i think it's going to be um yeah it could be a tricky 2023 for alex yeah also i mean ideally you'd want to see him on the yamaha because you think it would he would really suit the yamaha uh, and especially as franco morbidelli is having such an absolute nightmare on that uh, on that bike and just not being able to do anything on it um, but Yamaha seem completely committed to, to Morbidelli. They're going to give him another, um, uh, you know, give him an, another year or, uh, or another year on the bike. They're going to honor his contract. Um, then again, he was saying like he can't get, uh, Morbidelli was saying he can't get the best out of the bike because he can't sort of push hard and be aggressive in the, uh, to, to set a fast lap. So, uh, who knows? Maybe that bike would also not suit Alex Rins. But, um, yeah, it, it, Alex Rins on a Honda, it just seems, doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Yeah, I think it's going to be quite interesting as well because obviously you mentioned about the Honda and whether it will suit Rinza's style. We've obviously heard for since Suzuki's announcement that Mir is the top priority for Honda to put onto the Repsol bike. It would be quite interesting to see how those two guys would react to very different set of circumstances. Neil, the big story at the weekend, obviously, with Grassini confirming Digia and Marquez, is then what happens to Bastianini and Jorge Martin because. You know, they're obviously going to be on a Pramac or a factory seat, but it just depends which way it's going. And uh, obviously enough, Jorge Martin, he's done himself a lot more favours over the last few rounds than what we've seen from Bestia. Yeah, he has, yeah. Um, I mean, Martin obviously was great in uh, Barcelona when he scored a, a second place there. Um, but I would say really what's helped him more has been Bastianini's kind of form dropping off a cliff since uh, his win in France. I mean, he scored a sixth and a fifth place and two crashes in uh, the four races since then. So it's not been good for Enea. Uh, Martin has managed to get a little bit more consistency, you know, sixth, seventh in his last two races after that, second in, in Barcelona. But it's not quite the explosive Jorge Martin maybe that we saw at the end of last year that we were expecting uh, more off this year. And obviously there are some circumstances there, but um, I would say neither of them are doing a, an entirely convincing job of showing Ducati that they should be the the rider in their in their factory team. To be honest, um, so yes, I mean they've they've kind of said that uh, I think they're going to make the decision after the races in August. So I think they have two more races to really show uh, what they can do in Austria. Or sorry, Silverstone and then Austria. Um, but yes, I mean we were talking a couple of weeks ago of Bastianini as a potential title contender, and that is just completely fallen away so um yeah i would say martin's job has been enhanced but mainly because bastianini's made such a meal of the last month of racing uh, it was interesting that he sort of basically just owned up to to it saying you know he, that um uh, on sunday night he was saying that yeah he'd been he'd been nervous um and that had been really really good for or that had been really really bad for his results uh i think you know the, the wins were good but the uh, I think maybe the bad results got to him. Um, it made his, 
it made it difficult for him to concentrate. It made it difficult for him to really sort of like focus and just be just be calm and smooth. And and that definitely sort of uh, explains why he's so up and down. And it really doesn't make any difference. Uh, or well, I mean, neither of them are really looking. Neither Martin nor Bastianini are looking like they sort of you know deserve uh, uh, win with air quotes the uh, the the factory ride. The, I mean, they both have they're both incredibly talented, incredibly incredibly fast races, but they both seem to be flawed. Yeah, it seems fairly typical, Dave, for what we've seen from Ducati over the last while, where they've got talented riders, but maybe they're not that like can't miss prospect to be able to finally take the championship for them and that's been their that's been their achilles heel over the last number of years having a great bike but not an out and out superstar rider uh, yeah what was interesting i mean like it was a fantastic ride by peko to uh, to win it, you know he just controlled the race from the front the interesting thing was that he was saying in uh, the saxon ring that what he needed to do or the, the reason he crashed there or well he was saying at, at assen before the weekend uh, that he'd been he sat down and spent two days thinking about you know why did this crash happen at the saxon ring and he said like it's because it, when he decides to sit behind a rider and wait, um, he it's not quite losing concentration. You, you're, you're just sort of like slackening off a little bit, and that's just enough for him to make a mistake. Um, that here, he went out from the front and he just pushed, um, and he, he controlled the race. And he, he was saying like that's the way that he's been that he's won races throughout his career uh he's won races where he's gone out uh, either been at the front and pushed right from the start or been involved in an intense battle and and had to push right uh, right throughout the race and those races where he has to push that's when he can really sort of maintain that 100 percent concentration throughout and not make mistakes so um uh, it makes you wonder it, it has banyaya sort of finally sort of cracked it um uh, we will see later on in the race that in the season when we get to a few more races where they have to where tire management is more of a thing it absolutely wasn't a thing at, uh, at Aston. you could just go sort of like flat out from from start to finish and and uh, that's what he did so uh, we'll see whether this is the step that banyaya really needed Neil, just before we wrap up on the rider market, obviously ORNF and the Aprilia satellite team is going to be quite an interesting one for next year. What's the latest on it? Yeah, it looks like it's going to be Miguel Oliveira there. Um, he was obviously talking to Grissini Ducati um, quite seriously, I think, but it does seem that uh, one of his personal sponsors, I think, in, uh, is Hyundai in Portugal, and that is a pretty major sponsor. And uh, Ducati being uh, run and uh, owned by Audi, owned by Audi would be uh, that would kind of clash uh, somewhat considerably so um they couldn't really uh, they couldn't really agree there um so yes it looks as though Miguel's going to RNF Aprilia it's going to be a great bike um and it's going to be interesting to see just what kind of team that is obviously Razlan Rosali will be heading that up but you imagine that Aprilia will try and um put their own fingerprints on the uh, on the squad and the technicians the crew chiefs and things like that so um I think it's a it's a good move for for Miguel. I think he's a, an extraordinarily capable rider. He's won four races on the KTM before, which is more than any other rider that's managed that with that machine. Um, and uh, you know there are grounds to believe that the Aprilia has been the consistent consistently the best bike this year. Um, so I think um, yeah, Miguel 
can really take a step up in his performances in 2023 with that. The second seat, I'm not so sure. I mean, it does seem that uh, Ralph Fernandez's name is uh, continually linked um, with that spot. Um, there was an interesting interview with Pitt Byer on Speed Week on Monday um, by Gunther Riesinger, in which um, Pitt was saying that basically there's a bit of a bit of a standoff between um, KTM and Raul. I think KTM have the option to exercise an extension for Raul next year and Raul might have to buy out um, his contract to be able to leave. Um, I mean, it would make no absolutely no sense KTM holding him to his contract when, um, you know, his performances have generally been quite listless this year. But it does seem that there's going to be a uh, there's going to be something financial that needs to be resolved before he can move to RNF. So it'll be interesting to see how that one unfolds. Um, but yeah, again, you know, Raul, we know his capabilities, we know his potential on a, a, a really, 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 really competitive bike. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how it goes. So, um, so yeah, that's how it's looking at RNF. That's perfect, Neil. And uh, obviously, we'll get back now to our, our usual post round structure. So, Dave, we're going to kick off straight with you for your moment of the race weekend. Uh, well, I mean, if it was up to me, it would be the uh, being stopped at the, at the gates twice trying to enter mo a motorcycle race on a motorcycle, which seems almost impossible. But I shan't bang on about. It. I banged on enough about it enough on Twitter. Um, uh, in, instead, I think uh, for me, I mean, you know, the, the moment was Fabio Quartararo's crash. Um, uh, 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 trying to overtake uh, Alicia Spider on the fifth lap, uh, you know, coming out or <clears throat> entering the hairpin, the strubbing hairpin. Uh, he was really, I mean, it was just ambitious. It was just, you know, too ambitious. It, it, he came from a little bit too be too uh, too far behind, and he tried a little bit too hard and lost uh, lost the front and sort of. Forced Alesh out. I think Alesh was very, very lucky in that he was, uh, he managed to stay upright. He was just like run off into the gravel. Uh, and it set up one of the most amazing performances of the entire sort of weekend. Uh, well, not just the entire weekend, perhaps the year and perhaps, you know, for, in, in, in for a long time because Alesh's ride through the, through the field was just astounding. But it was a very uncharacteristic mistake from Quasararo. Uh, afterwards, he just he held his hand up and said, look, it was a mistake. It was just stupid. He didn't blame the tyres. He didn't blame the Moto 2 rubber. Uh, he just said, I tried too hard and I, and, I, and I messed up. And it does make you think that maybe it was he was getting a little bit nervous about Banyaya. But even then, he said, you know, look, we'd, uh, uh, Alicia and I, we'd, we'd, we were catching Banyaya. Banyaya got a little way at the start, but, you know, we'd caught him. We were close enough. That it was obvious that he really wasn't really getting away. Um, so it was almost like he didn't understand it. I just think it was nerves. Neil? Just about the Quattro crash, because obviously, or the, the incident, he's now got a long lap penalty for it as well. This was one of the big talking points after the race. Exactly, Steve, yes. Um, and it's it's proved to be quite a controversial decision to give Quattro that penalty. Um, I don't know if either of you saw his Instagram post yesterday. I think it was on one of his stories where he was lambasting the FIM stewards and basically sarcastically applauding them for doing a wonderful job. Um, I mean... I just really struggle to see where they're coming from with this. Um, I think normally, in normal circumstances, without what has happened this year, you look at it and you think he's tried to make an honest move. 
He is one of the cleaner riders in the class. I can't remember Quattararo making a, a sort of a, a really aggressive or almost um, questionable move uh, in a race before in MotoGP. Um, I might be wrong, but I, I'm really struggling to think of, of similar incidents. So, you know, you would say he's one of the cleaner riders in the class. And this is one of the, you know, this is the first big mistake he's made in the race this year. And it was an honest mistake. It wasn't like he was doing anything dirty. He tried to make an overtake. He misjudged it and he crashed out. So um, I think that is very harsh in those circumstances. Then when you factor in the fact that Takaki Nakagami was penalized for, sorry, was not penalized for the first corner incident in Barcelona. And you think, what's going on? Nakagami wasn't penalized in a crash where he took down Peko Banyaya and Alex Rins. Alex Rins fractured his left wrist. Uh, Fabio ran Alessio Spargaro off track, but then Spargaro managed to recover. So it wasn't as if Spargaro's race was completely ruined by that incident. Ah, I find it very difficult to, uh, to level with that uh, process. Yeah, Alessio himself said uh, Fabio's one of the cleanest riders uh, uh, on the grid. Um, uh, he was, had absolutely no concerns about that sort of a level of, uh, uh, of aggression. It was just a pass which, which uh, didn't come off. And as Neil said, it makes absolutely no sense in that uh, Takanakagari doesn't get a, uh, doesn't get a penalty, but Fabio Quattararo does. Um, they were handing out a lot of penalties. I mean, there was uh, in Moto Two, there was I think David Munoz and Adrian. Fren- oh, yeah, sorry, Moto Three. Yeah, uh, uh, David Munoz and uh, Adri Fernandez, Fernandez getting uh, getting penalties for causing other riders to crash. Uh, those seem like much more sort of valid uh, penalties. Uh, also, like the long lap penalty makes no sense. The, but there's no, there's just no consistency. It's really hard to see the, you know, a rule. And I remember back in the days when uh, we actually had a good race direction, um, or rather uh, when, when the race director was making the penalties rather than the FIA panel of stewards. Um, one of the things which Mike Webb always said to us was, we need to let them, we need to let them race. Um, but we can't afford to let them be dangerous. And what Fabio tried was not dangerous. For a start, it's the slowest corner on the grid, um, on, on the track. And secondly, it was, it was a little bit ambitious. It wasn't coming from miles back. It wasn't, you know, like, it wasn't Capirossi in, uh, uh, on, uh, on Harada at Argentina. Uh, it was, just, you know, trying a little bit too hard. It wasn't even Takanakagami at the, at turn one in Barcelona. Uh, it was, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he tried a little bit too much. I mean, he, what should have happened is he should have been taken into to the stewards and the steward, uh, stewards should have laughed at him for being stupid and said, ha ha, zero points and, uh, and, uh, give him a clip around the ear and send him away after telling him not to do that again. But, um, no, it just, it just makes no sense. Yeah, I always think it's quite interesting that there seems to be a need for accountability in all instance. You're out there racing. You can have a racing instant. Like we had it in Assen for superbikes when Ray and Razgadi Oglu crashed into each other. And there was an outcry that there needed to be punishment. Look at what's happened here. You know, one rider closing the door on another, this, that and the other. One guy's made a mistake and another guy's tried to get through. And this can happen. It's a race. If if we don't want yeah. that, just line everyone up for qualifying and then give them their championship points after it. And this was one of those situations where, again, like Neil said, I don't really understand the reasoning behind it because it just seems that, yeah, Aleish obviously 
gets penalized for it and he's handicapped for the rest of the day. But was he going to beat Paco? Maybe. So it's ended up costing him a handful of points. It's not the end of the world. Whereas for uh, Fabio, he's obviously had the crash. That's his punishment. He then <laughs> comes back into the race, has another crash, comes away with no points. You know, it seems that, you know, all was right with the world. There was an equilibrium from this. Aleish Aspagra made a really interesting point after the race saying that, um, uh, that, you know, the reason he just went for it after he came back on the track was because he felt he had nothing to lose. You know, there was no point in him getting like three or four points. He had to get as many points as possible. And in the end, Aleish Aspagra actually ended up gaining because, sure, he lost points to uh, Pekka Banyai, but Pekka Banyai was a long way was a long way ahead. Uh, he made up 13 points on Fabio Quartararo. And if they'd both stayed upright... Uh, then he would have only have gained maybe five points on uh, Fabio Quartararo, you know, m- maybe eight points, um, uh, or no, sorry, nine points if it had been, uh, if, for example, Aleish had won, uh, and Fabio had finished third. Uh, so in, in actual fact, Aleish came out uh, ahead thanks to the mistake of Fabio. So he actually did much better out of it. Well, a little bit like Aleish, we've lost a lot of time in the first sector of this race. So we're going to take a quick ad break and when we come back, we'll look at some of the other moments and the big topics of conversation from the Dutch CT. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street and Fly Racing. And Neil, obviously we've heard David's moment of the weekend. What was your moment of the weekend? Uh, moment of the weekend, Steve, I think is uh, is fairly obvious. Um, not just the pass of the weekend, I think maybe the pass of the, the entire season so far. Uh, and that was Alessio Spargo's magnificent two in one at the Gert Timmer chicane uh, on the final lap, where he overtook both Brad Binder and Jack Miller, two of the more later breakers, uh, aggressive breakers in the in the class. Um, and it was just, uh, I thought it was just magnificent. Um, completely surprising as well, because Spargo, I think, was seventh at that point on the racetrack the previous lap he uh, overtook um jorge martin uh, there on the penultimate lap and then basically managed to come back and uh, and grab both binder and miller there um and it was it was wonderful i loved brad binder's reaction to it when we sort of asked him whether it was a clean move and uh, he just said you know what fucking hats off to the guy that was was just a wonderful response because even Binder despite losing the place and obviously being maybe a little frustrated at at how it happened had to doff his hat to him and uh, if Brad Binder doffs his hat to you for making an overtaken move then you know it's one hell of an overtaken move well Dave as the man that wears the hat in MotoGP did you (laughs) take your hat off for the move I did have to. I did have to say my hat off to him because it was absolutely outstanding. I mean, like um, uh, I can't remember if it's Brad, if it was uh, Brad or Jack Miller who was sort of like saying, you know, like um, Brad, like Jack was breaking late. Uh, Brad was breaking even later to overtake him, and Alice just sailed by by like they were, uh, you know, like they were a couple of amateurs. I mean, it was just he was he was breaking so late. Alice was also saying, like, you know, this is. 
Uh, this is one of the, he had so much more there. He was ca- able to carry a lot more speed through, uh, through the Ramshook. Um, he was able to break that much later for the GT, which, by the way, no one calls it, no one in Holland calls it the Geert Timmerbocht. They call it either the Timmerbocht or the GT. So, uh, you can just drop the whole Geert, Geert thing and, uh, and just call it the GT and do everyone a favor. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was an absolutely fantastic, it was, it was fantastic to move. I mean, you had to go back and watch it several times to try and figure out how on earth it happened. It was uh, th- there was that much of an advantage through there. I spent all my weekend trying my hardest to pronounce the uh, the, the, the corner names that asked correctly, and you throw it back in my face as if I'm uh, <laughs> some kind of imbecile. I genuinely appreciated the effort that you made to do uh, for the uh, Mavenmere and uh, Mondavein and the Veinslang. Um, but, um, uh, you know, it's the GT. No one calls it Geert's Timmer. It's just the GT. So, um, can we get over it? Because I saw lots of people on Twitter cr- criticizing TV commentators for uh, calling it the GT, um, and not using its full name. Well, nobody uses its full name, mate. You know, it's like, it's the GT. Well, in fairness, it's listed as just chicane and then the gt bit (laughs) is the corner leading into it so uh but just just about that dave as well because what i found interesting with it was that uh for alish this was obviously one of the rounds where he used his new aero package and it seemed that it just gave him an awful lot more confidence as well compared to some of the other riders around him it looks like another area where aprilia has made a bit of a march on everyone else yeah i mean aprilia have made a huge uh, uh They've done a few things really well. First of all, they engaged uh, Massimo Rivola to do to run the management side, uh, which has been a huge step. He's fantastic. He's also fantastic. But he's fantastic with riders uh, at managing the mood in the team, uh, where uh, Romano Albaciano was very very hard. The other thing they've done they've done is is brought in uh, a bunch of aerodynamicists from uh, F1 to help develop it and, uh, and a bunch of other engineers. And the other thing is that aerodynamics is now in aerodynamics in MotoGP has developed to such a state that, um, the motorbike people now know enough about aerodynamics to be able to ask the right questions. Previously, what they were doing was uh, the motorbike people knew nothing about aerodynamics and uh, they would bring in F1 engineers uh, who knew lots about aerodynamics but nothing about motorbikes and they would just say, can you make it faster? And the F1 people would think, I don't know, how to, how to, well, they, they would imagine ways of, of making the thing go faster and it wouldn't work because, you know, a motorcycle is a, is an object which moves in three dimensions and not two. Um, the, the way that cars do, cars are, you know, they stay flat on the ground and you manage the airflow to make them go faster. Whereas, uh, a, a motorbike is all over the place and that's how you, how you make it go faster. But now the motorbike engineers, they've been working with aerodynamics now for five, six, seven years. They've got a really, they've got a good understanding of how the, the aerodynamics uh, uh, affects the motorcycle. So when they bring in F1 people, they can m- ask very specific questions. We need to create this amount of downforce in this, uh, in this spot. But if we, if we do this, then it might upset this there. And so, you know, don't go overboard o- o- on that. So the, the, there's a much better understanding of the whole picture and it's making, it's making a huge difference. And when you talk to riders about, you know, what does the arrow do? They'll say, yeah, it helps with, with wheelie, which was the original intention, but that's 
now become almost the third thing. And now it's just it's uh, about confidence in the front end, keeping uh, uh, creating grip on the uh, on the front of the bike, uh, uh, du- especially during cornering and uh, uh, you know breaking corner entry uh, and cornering. So yeah, I mean, Aero is here to stay. Yeah, I always find it quite interesting that if you think back twenty years ago, thirty years ago, there was a lot of Formula One people got involved in 500 grand prix or the early days of four strokes whether it was alan jenkins john barnard and all of them said that it was a resources issue and understanding things and now we've got the ability with cfd and lots of other things to be able to really test what you can do and i think it's also interesting that at the same time that revola came to moto gp a moto gp guy went to formula one davide brivio brivio hasn't been a success Revola has been a success and I remember at the time it was really interesting that the reaction from the MotoGP paddock was what do we need a Formula 1 guy to come in and show us what to do oh look at this our guy's going to show them what to do and then it's been pretty much the exact opposite just with the way that things have transpired but it's been really interesting to see how Aprilia have righted the ship so well and Neil I think that kind of brings us into your big topic of the weekend as well. It, it does indeed, Steve. Yeah, nice, uh, nice segue there. Because my topic, I guess, is just whether we think Alesha's ride proves that he can be uh, the champion this year. Because I think coming away from the Saxon ring, we were all in some doubt as to whether Fabio Quattararo would have a challenger uh, over the course of this season. He just looked so much better than the rest of the field in both Barcelona and in the Saxon ring. And admittedly, uh, Alesha's Bargaro had an issue with his front tyre at the Saxon Ring, which didn't allow him to fight for the podium as he uh, as he felt he could have done. Um, but even he said after the race at the Saxon Ring, Fabio is consistently faster than me on a Sunday and we need more speed to fight with him. And, um, you know, I think what we saw on Sunday, we not only saw a chink in Fabio's armour, a kind of a, a just an unnecessary mistake, really. I mean, he, the race was there for him. It wasn't as if Beko Bagnaia was way up the way up the road in the distance, it wasn't as if he was three seconds clear and he had to desperately get past the lace as soon as possible to to catch him. I mean, those guys had basically reeled Banyaya in after he had escaped momentarily at the, in the first lap, the first two laps. But um, so, so you know, there was that aspect of it where, you know, we saw a real uh, a chink in Fabio's armor for the first time this year. And, uh, you know, then Alessia's subsequent performance in the race was just fantastic. I mean, it looked as though someone had... Uh, had basically taken one of the the reruns of Mark Marquez's former feats in the uh, Moto2 class and basically changed the colors of the bike, uh, changed the number and changed the the stature of the rider sitting on board. Um, Aleix was, I mean, comfortably the fastest guy on track. Um, I think when he was hit off track by Fabio, he lost something like eight seconds. Um, But then he came home, I think, just 2.5 back of Peko at the checkered flag. So he essentially lost or he essentially recovered six seconds over the uh, over the rest of the race while having to overtake um, 11 riders, I think, uh, going from 15th to 4th. So Yeah, but in fairness, um, there was only 10 actual moves then, Neil, because he did two and one. Exactly. Some of those did involve two and one. So uh, you're absolutely right, Steve. Yes, I shouldn't overstate that point too much. But I think this was the kind of ride that even maybe Alicia Spargro surprised himself with. It was one of those things where uh, a kind of a rider that has been a good rider, 
does something really special and then you wonder whether that might give them the belief that okay i can actually i can do these things um and he said it was as i think they've previously mentioned when he got knocked off by fabio he just thought you know what nothing to lose i have to just get my head down and try and recover as much as possible rather than think about managing the race or do i push at this point or do i not just get the head down and put everything into it um and he did something quite special i mean i think that was probably the best ride we've seen all year from anyone um, maybe Fabio's amazing ride at Mugello included in that um, so um, I thought it was I thought it was fantastic it, you know it came just at the right time and just when it seemed that Fabio was um, uh, escaping in the championship the his lead is back down to 21 points less than a race with uh, you know some good tracks coming up for both him and Alish so um, yeah I thought uh, you know Alish has to come away as the as the big winner here yeah, on the one hand, I'm really looking forward to Silverstone. And on the other hand, um, I where both Fabio and Alicia are really, really strong. And on the other hand, I'm really quite glad that it's several weeks ago and I, away and I'm going to be able to catch up on, on a little <laughs> bit of sleep. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, there were two things. Alicia again said um, maybe Fabio made the mistake because he's been so confident. He's been able to do whatever he likes with his, with his bike and he thought, you know, it'll work. He's used to everything working. Uh, this one didn't, and so it caught him out. Um, and the other thing is that uh, when we talk about why isn't there any overtaking in MotoGP, one of the factors is that the bikes are also very close together. And when bikes are all sort of within a tenth of each other, then it does become extremely difficult to to uh, to make an overtake because it's, you can't force your way through. Now, Assen is built for overtaking. There's a number of places where where uh, which are really great places to, where you can overtake, um, both in straight braking, but also sort of you know by by lining up a pass a couple of corners be, uh, beforehand. Um, but the difference was that that here Alessio Spargaro had so much more than everyone else. He was so much faster that actually passing riders wasn't very difficult because he just had more speed and this is why we used to see a lot more passing because you know if you got stuck behind uh, uh, if you got stuck in traffic uh, and you were on a much faster bike you th there was a way of actually getting past and uh, yeah Alice demonstrated that I'm not convinced I mean, it, it's, it was a fantastic ride and it's definitely going to help with uh, Alasia's confidence. I am not convinced that it is a chink in Fabio's armour, though. I think it was, you know, like a a temporary lapse. Um, I think we're going to be back to the old uh, Fabio once uh, once the season returns. Um, I still think uh, he's going to win the championship. I think he's in, you know, just outstanding form. Um, just the way he's managing the whole bike. And I think this crash was more to do, was more overconfidence than, uh, than sort of desperation, if you see what I mean. And that's the kind of lesson. It's going to be the kind of thing that he learns from and doesn't do again. Yeah, I, I guess I could see that point of view, Dave. Just going back to Aspargro, we had uh, maybe criticised him a little bit for some aspects of his racing. He hasn't been the best starter this year, and he certainly hasn't been super aggressive in the opening laps. Uh, you think back to Barcelona, and he was almost trying to manage. He was being too cautious with tyre management early on, and that allowed Quartararo to just clear off and Jorge Martin to get by him, and basically the race was over by lap three. Um, Aleix... 
said afterwards that um, you know that was a mistake on his part, maybe on the team's part as well, for telling him that um, he was having to manage too much. But here, what I liked about his performance is he came through from the second row uh, to the first three positions immediately. Uh, it was super aggressive with his overtaking Quattararo, I think, on lap one, and um, you know then proceeded to reel off uh, a show reel of uh, just really clinical brilliant overtakes which hasn't always been his strong suit before obviously the aerodynamics which you were talking about a few minutes ago that played their part um Alessio was saying he was just able to carry so so much corner speed through the ramsuk uh, which leads into the gt chicane not the geared timmer chicane um that that obviously played his part but you know at the same time Alessio had to do the had to do the riding, had to execute them clinically, and he did. Every single one was absolutely clinical, um, and we haven't always seen that from him this year. So, another reason to commend him. Yeah, I think what's interesting from that, Neil, is that uh, you mentioned about having to make those moves much more aggressive on Sunday than he had been up until this point. This could be one of those things that really frees him up going forward as well, because he's obviously being fully aware for most of this season that, you know what, I've actually got a chance of winning the championship, so I can't afford to make mistakes. And now maybe he's seen, you know what, actually, I've got the bike, I've got the speed, I've got everything lined up. This could actually be one of those things that does much more for his confidence than even winning a race earlier in the season. This might show him that, you know what, you've got to be able to ride like this all the way through races. And maybe it frees him up a little bit from that tension as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays going forward. I I mean, it can also work the other way in the sense that um, uh, he realises that it's possible and that actually places more pressure on it. Whereas before, if you're still from sort of looking at yourself as uh, as an underdog, you're thinking, "Well, I've got nothing to lose. I can I, I can keep doing this. I can I can just like push and see where it, uh, you know." Failure isn't really failure if you consider yourself an underdog. Whereas if you start to think of yourself as a viable candidate. Um, then the cost of failure becomes higher sort of thing. You know, the cost of mistakes becomes higher. You think you can't afford to make mistakes and then that raises the pressure and makes it easier to make a mistake. We're going to take another break on the Paddock Pass podcast, but before we do, we've got a Renthal Street Sessions interview with KTM's Brad Binder. And Neil, just before we, we jump into the interview with Brad, what was the story from his race? Obviously, we mentioned the uh, two-for-one pass from uh, Aleish at the end of the race, but uh, second top five finish of the season for Brad. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant performance from Brad. Once again, you get the impression that he is working minor miracles on that package this year. And I would have to say, apart from Fabio and Aleish, who I think have been the, the standout performers this year, obviously Banyaya, in terms of speed, has been there, but it's just been inconsistent and made too many mistakes. I think Binder is, is right up there with... Um, in that kind of bracket of, of the, the best riders we're looking at at the moment because consistently he's able to to bring the KTM to within you know distance of the podium fight um, to finish 2.7 seconds off at a track where uh, you know turning is very important and we know that the, the, the RC16 doesn't have uh, fantastic turning capabilities at the moment he was saying he was losing so much time at the Struben that turn long turn 5 where you're spending so much time trying to turn to the left and get the bike squared up to go onto the back straight onto the Wienschlang. Um, you know, considering that, he still managed to uh, to be right up there. Um, just back from the podium fight, uh, less than three seconds off the victory. Uh, I think he was four seconds off the victory at Mugello. Um, I think Brad is, is doing a, a wonderful job at the moment. So, um, you know, that leads us nicely into uh, this rental street session. Brad, 
Uh, thanks for joining us for the latest uh, Rendell Street session. We're here in the paddock in Saxon Ring. Um, so the buzz of bikes already on a Thursday, so it's getting pretty busy. Um, first of all, describe your style to us, you know, and how it's changed over two years in MotoGP. Uh, well, firstly, thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, I mean, your style is something when I think as a motorbike racer, you have to keep adapting and keep changing. You know, I think uh, one of the worst things you can do is get stuck in your ways and uh, you've got to always be willing to adapt and change because as things change, as circuits change, uh, you know, the track conditions, the grip levels, all of that, you need to do certain things quite differently, you know, whether it be hang off the bike a little bit more or, um, I don't know, maybe uh, in the braking zone, you know, as you fatigue over a race, use your legs more, all that kind of stuff just comes into uh, comes into play. And, uh, yeah, I mean, my style generally is a little bit more old school. I think I don't hang off a ton. I scrape my elbows a lot because I get off quite a lot with my upper body. But um, uh, my butt doesn't hang off as much as some of the others. I noticed that um, watching you in Jerez coming through turn two, I mean, you seem to be sat quite far back on the bike. I mean, it's almost like your arms are really stretched out doing a lot of work. Is that really how you see things as well? Yeah, uh, well, some it depends on the corner. Obviously, uh, some corners I sit further back than others. Uh, for example, turn two in Jerez, we're having huge problems with overloading the front. So uh, we had a lot of chatter there and it was so easy for us to keep tucking the front every time we would just put full lead angle. So the further back I sat there, the less issues I had. So um, that would explain that. But in general, I do sit further back than most riders do. And for me, it's always given me an advantage in the braking and entry phase of the corner. But sometimes mid-corner, it can be worse than, say, a guy sits a bit further forward. If you compare how you ride the RC16 now compared to you know when you, you first tried in the tests do you see much evolution there do, you know just in terms of general feeling in fact uh definitely you know i think when you as you step up onto a moto gp bike uh at the beginning of moto 2 you don't need to uh, ride the bike in a way to save energy at all or just you can like uh, ride the thing as hard as you want and do what you want and you don't really fatigue much whereas the gp bike's a lot heavier to change direction everything's like a lot more stable and a lot more you have to put in a lot more effort to get the bike to do what you want and um, at the beginning you know you you tend to uh, try and throw the thing around with in a way that you can't really so you end up using your legs a lot more you end up um, you know just using your body weight to try and like counterbalance the bike all the time whereas on smaller bikes with less power you don't have to and uh, over the years one thing that i've noticed you tend to do much better is learn like the pickup of the bike and how you can really find that little bit extra grip with your body or really push the edge of the angles just to try and turn that bit extra in some some points do you think that people are can can they imagine how sensitive ergonomics are on a MotoGP bike because if you maybe a high profile case is someone like jorge lorenzo or like when he famously worked out the tank shape on the ducati the results went from being okay to being fantastic and he was winning grand prix i mean can you describe some of that do you think people really get it you know the thing is one of the most important things on the bike is how comfortable you are if you feel like you're slipping off the side of a bike in the middle of a corner you're going to you're going to be um 
you know, you're going to be holding yourself up on your fore, on your uh, triceps or, you know, you put different force into the bikes and if you're pushing on the handlebars, it does different things completely to the bike, whether you're just sitting in the seat and, uh, you know, just pretty much putting all your weight into the saddle and not putting too much force into the bars. So for me at the beginning, of course, you played quite a bit with, um, you know, like your, your uh, lever positions, the height of your foot rests, um, your bars. But honestly, over the last two years, um, or the last year and a half especially, we haven't really changed too much. You kind of get your setting of exactly what you are. And the only thing we do is we maybe move the entire rider around on the bike a little bit. Whereas bars come back, seat goes back, foot pegs go back, you know. Or, so it's like a unit. Yeah, exactly. You almost treat it as like a, a fixed thing and you can move that around a bit. But the, the bases of everything stays the same when it comes to something like handlebar position and setup are you particularly fussy with that or you know uh, you have this reputation of being able to sort of ride around stuff um so are you quite particular when it comes to finding that setting um you know i find as a rider you you tend to get used to whatever you have honestly like um of course you have a good idea of what you want and what's comfortable for you um, but also I think it's it's down to each rider but uh, like for me I have to run my handlebars more open than what I necessarily would like to purely because my left wrist doesn't bend as well as it should so if I want to hang off in the left corner as well and still hold the handlebar I need the handlebars more open because if the thing's closed I feel blocked all the time so that's one trait that I always prefer the handlebars a little bit more out but um yeah other than that there's not too much to it once you have your setting the mechanics have everything down to the mill and uh, it doesn't matter which bike you ride if you crashed at the previous session they feel identical so they're really really good at making sure that everything we feel and touch is always the same because i know in motocross riders get very sensitive about lever position um you know the angles to the forks everything to do with the handlebars is, is that also the case for you i mean you notice if even if you know your brake lever or whatever is just a millimeter out even though you've got more controls than ever you've had to deal with on a MotoGP gp bike you notice everything i promise you it's the strangest thing like if it's uh one mil here one mil there or you know our levers one thing i often feel is that uh our, our brake lever is like on a swivel in case we crash so it can pop up and if that thing's not dead straight even though everything else is perfect the whole lever feels like it's in the wrong spot and um, you know it's so funny like even when you put in on new a new pair of boots sometimes it feels like your gear levers move but then the guys show you to the mill it's absolutely perfect and the next exit once your boots are a bit broken and everything comes back to normal so it's crazy how sensitive you can be and uh yeah, it's funny how sometimes some small things just throw you off. Uh, but as I mentioned, you, you have a bit of a reputation for being able to force an issue with a motorcycle and ride around perhaps problems, you know, that you might be having during a weekend, like being the cliched Sunday man. Is that a, a curse as much as, as it is a blessing? Because, uh, you know, you're always having not to fight, but or there's almost a bit of a struggle. People assume you can just make the best of what you've got and that's it. Uh, well, honestly, I'm not too sure. <laughs> um, uh, just on a Sunday, I don't, wouldn't say that I get any better or I do anything different. It's just that I'm maybe not the best at doing uh, one super fast lap, so I look worse than I am all weekend, but I'm really good at doing the same lap time really consistently. And um, 
yeah, so, I mean, at the end of the, the day, a race is 20 whatever laps, 25, 28 laps of uh, your average time is what counts. doesn't matter if you do one lap three tenths faster, but if you do the rest six tenths slower, you're going to be nowhere. So uh, I'm really good at being consistent. That's my strongest point, and I think that's what carries me through a lot of the races. When it comes to setup, can you compartmentalize quite well? Can you say, guys, look, we tried a lot of things this weekend. This is as good as we're going to get. Leave it to me. I, I, I'll try and do what I can now. Yeah, I mean, often I think there's there's times where you have to take a step back, except where you are, and say, okay, listen, guys, this is how it is. Um, I want to understand what I have underneath me, so let's try not drift too far away from what we currently have, and I just let's try and make this work the best we can. But there's other times where you feel like um, you have your hands tight. You know, you're absolutely giving your best, and you're nowhere, and you know you're riding well. You know you're doing everything well, but you just absolutely not in the picture and uh, it's those days where you really do need to almost turn the bike upside down and often by doing that you do find what you're looking for. Lastly Brian I mean I know you must have your frustrations like any other rider but then also you you have this fantastic attitude of trying to make the best of everything. Um, do you think that people and fans can imagine how much stress there actually is trying to live in a job where you exist in tenths of a second? You know, it's tough. Like, uh, if you just look at last week, I think I I qualified 13th, I think, or 14th, 15th maybe even, and I was 0.033 from the first lap time in Q1. I mean, that's nothing. Absolutely nothing. You know, if you find that, yeah, that could, that's the, if I had just done something so tiny different, that would have been the difference from maybe lining up 7th on the grid rather than 15th. Uh, so you're playing with such small margins and um, everything's so competitive at the moment. Bikes are so close. All the riders are fast. There's not a big difference between the guys in first and the guys in last at the moment. You know, we're talking about a second, not more. And uh, yeah, when something's not working well and you're losing two tenths in one sector for some reason, that's, and for some reason you just can't seem to find those couple tenths in that sector, that kills you. Like it's such tiny things that uh, end up being a big problem nowadays. Thanks for your time, Brad. Best of luck the rest of the season. Cool. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street and Fly Racing. Neil, you've only got a couple of minutes before you have to run out, so we're going to quickly come to you for your winners and losers from the Dutch TT. Uh, yes, Steve. Well, first of all, the winner has to be uh, the rider that won his first Grand Prix in the Moto3 class uh, on Sunday, Yuma Sasaki. I think produced a, a fantastic performance. Um, I think it was just 30 days after he had suffered that really sickening collision with uh, Jamal Masi at Mugello, which, I mean, let's face it, when we saw it live, we feared for Yuma's life. I mean, it was that serious. He was basically run over the top part of his chest. Um, he broke his left collarbone and... Um, by all accounts at Mugello, it sounded as though Yuma was going to be out uh, until Silverstone. Um, he suffered a really big bang to the head, heavy concussion. And to everyone's surprise, came back in Germany, scored a really impressive fourth place there in searingly high temperatures. And then um, 
uh, from pole position, uh, managed the kind of victory fight really well, and um, yeah, won his first race. So um, I thought it was a, a really strong performance from Ayumu. Um, and, you know, goes in line with some of his performances that we've seen this year. He's taken a huge step forward. Um, and if I'm to talk about the loser, I'm going to have to go with Alex Rins, not just for the fact that um, it was a, it was a poor weekend for both him and Joanne Mir. You know, at a track where Suzuki really should be uh, performing a lot better than it did. Um, I know Rins is still recovering from his left wrist injury, but to come home 10th, I thought was a bit lackluster. And the fact that uh, he happens to be edging towards a deal with LCR Honda, I just, like Dave said at the start of the show, I can't see how that's going to be a success with his riding style, um, with his languid, smooth way of, of, of getting around the bike. Uh, I just cannot see how that's going to work aboard a Honda. So, um, I mean, Honda is certainly um, signing two very, very high-class riders in, in Mir and Rins. But uh, Mir, I can see because he is a, a sort of an aggressive style. But Rins, I, I don't see that. So, I mean, he might need to do some winning before the end of the year because I can't really see him doing some winning when he gets on board the Honda, to be honest. All right. Well, look, thanks for joining us, Neil. And uh, we'll let you start your five weeks holiday as early as you can. That's clearly <laughs> where you're running after. <laughs> Off to the beach, lads. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Neil. Dave, obviously we've we've skipped ahead to uh, to bring Neil's winners and losers, but we didn't get to talk about your big topic from the weekend. So run away with it. What was it? Uh, well, I mean, in a way, it's Marco Bezzecchi's uh, podium. Fantastic performance all weekend by Bezzecchi. Um And a fantastic ride because uh, he could never quite catch Banyaya, but he never lost sight of him either. Um, he was always within striking distance. And once they, we started getting, you know, a few sp uh, little spits of rain, um, Bezeki knew that he had less to lose. So he closed down a little bit, but Banyaya managed to, you know, could manage that gap. Um, the thing is, I mean, it was an outstanding ride by Bezeki, and Bezeki has shown, proven to be really, a really, really class rider. Something, I mean, in Moto, I mean, in Moto2, he was a really good rider, but you never really thought, he never really stood out. He always seemed to be, have, have uh, a few weaknesses. And here, this weekend, he he really, or, or well, since moving to MotoGP, really, he's really excelled himself. He's really shown the best side of himself. And it shows this is that you can't always judge riders from how they uh, how they come out of Moto2. Um, you know, the, the, there is still sufficient of a step between Moto2 and MotoGP to for, for riders to find that little bit that they were missing in themselves or missing in their riding or missing from the bike uh, to be able to be competitive but the fact that uh, Bezeki actually got on the podium is is a sign of just how good the Ducati is yeah because I think it's one of those situations where again you get to see almost it, this is something that a few riders have said to me whenever it's, this is superbike riders mostly whenever they've jumped onto a MotoGP bike to do a test or turn up for a few races and the, different things but they've all said that a MotoGP bike isn't that difficult to ride it's quite an easy bike to ride a lot of the electronics make it where it's it's pretty easy to be on the pace and then to find that extra half second is then really difficult but Bezeki and the rookies that we've seen over the last few years, whether you're looking at Bastianini, Jorge Martin, whoever you want to look at, even as far back as Zarco, whenever he jumped on the Tactua Yamaha, 
they can jump onto these bikes and do a really good job because it's about finding that confidence that you need. Bezaki's an interesting one, though, because like you mentioned, Dave, in Moto2, he wasn't really a standout performer, but he was always top five. He just always looked like he was missing that little step. And I think it's quite interesting when you look at Moto2 this year, Augusto Fernandez, he's leading the championship. He's won two in a row. Really strong performance last time out in uh, Assen and Saxon Ring. And he looks like a very different rider now than he did when he was on the Mark VDS bike. And it's the change to the IO team. It seems to have really found something in him. And Moto2 is like that. It's the tiniest things seem to make a massive difference. And Bezeki obviously had a good team. He was at the VR46 team. He was able to win races, podiums, lots of top fives, challenge for a top three in the championship. But he always looked like he was that little step behind on a Moto2 bike. Whereas now he's jumped onto a MotoGP bike. He looks like he's got all that experience that you need. And it's always interesting. The guys that are really fast on a Moto3 bike seem to make that transition quite well and for Bezeki, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens for the rest of the season because we know that the Ducati's great you mentioned it already there Dave when you look at all those riders that have great results on it it's now up to him to really kick on from this in the second half of the season yeah I mean yeah I mean Augusto Fernandez is a really good example <clears throat> and this uh, I mean Mark VDS uh, IO VR46 they are all three fantastic teams in Moto2 there's no real difference in skill levels between the between the mechanics and the engineers it's really just about sort of how you fit in the team um, how the, the, the how you gel with the team management how you gel, gel with your with your with your crew chief and it's those little it's those small little things which are really making the difference in Moto2 those are also the things that make a difference in in MotoGP as well. I mean, the 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 relationship with the crew chief is so important uh, at every level. Um, but as you go up, it becomes more and more important because the uh, the, the bike setting becomes more and more important. You know, in Moto2 becomes really crucial getting the bike set up right. MotoGP becomes incredibly important because riders have to understand, you know, how much you can actually do with the bike, how much you can change the feeling of the bike uh, with the electronics, with the setup, with the uh, with the ride height devices, you know, how, how you set that up, all the rest of it. Um, and those sort of things are making the real uh, the, the real difference. And just to come back to the Ducati, one, one sign of why the Ducati is such a good bike. I was wandering around looking at the at the various bikes uh, uh, on the grid today, the, the setups that they actually raced. Um, and what was really interesting was the difference in setup between all of the Ducatis. There were riders who had the, the swing on pivot at the, at the top. They had uh, riders who had it at the bottom. There were riders who had the headstock forward. There were riders who had the headstock back. Uh, these are radically different setups, and yet they all worked. You know, like it, it, it doesn't matter um, what the setup of the bike is. You can find a window within which you can actually operate. Um, that means the bike is extremely versatile, and it means it's a, it's a very, very all-round bike. So also, it was also interesting comparing Maverick Vinales' uh, setup with Alicia Spargros. Um, Maverick Vinales was uh, it had the, the front a lot lower than um, uh, than Alish, and you know, yet they finished third and fourth. Uh, so those both work again. It's a sign that the bike is pretty all-round. It's pretty good. It'll work on pretty much everything. 
Yeah, and uh, I think that brings us up to our winners and losers then, Dave. So we've obviously heard from Neil Sasaki in Moto3 was his winner and Alex Rins was his loser in the MotoGP class. But Dave, what about you? Who was your big winner from the weekend? The winner this weekend has to be Alessio Spargaro uh, for all the reasons we've talked about previously. Just It was an astonishing ride. It's going to be great for his confidence. Um, it does put more pressure on him because he realizes that you know the the championship is... Not just, you know, he's no longer an underdog for the championship. He's one of the two main contenders. Uh, he is right now the only man who can beat um, Fabio Quartararo. Um, but it was such an incredible ride. He made so much impression. Not just that pass where he's taking two riders uh, uh, at the same time into the GT chicane. Um, and two quite uh, quite tasty riders of their own uh, on their own accounts, you know. I mean, like uh, uh, Brad Binder and, and Jack Miller are no mugs. Um, but the fact that he, first of all, the mental resilience to come back, the mental resilience to like just get your head down, push, see where uh, see where you end up. Um, secondly, the just the brilliance of his riding, the brilliance of the Aprilia and the brilliance of his riding to be able to just fight, uh, cut through the the field. He was fairly convinced that he would have won that race if he did uh, if he hadn't have been knocked off. Um, I think it's hard to argue. I think he's absolutely spot on. Um, but yeah, this he comes. Alicia Spargo comes out of it more confident. Uh, having learned a lot as well, having uh, fought uh, fought his way through the field, but also having gained an awful lot of respect from everyone. They, you know, there's always big question marks around Alicia Spargera. How good really is he? Well, I think this is pretty conclusive uh, answer that on his day. He's really something, uh, something very special, and he needs to be. He needs to keep an eye out. And I think he might have uh, terrified a few of the other riders on the grid as well. Yeah, he might have made a few new fans from the weekend for that last lap move, but uh, this work gets a little bit, uh, a little bit difficult. Dave, my big winner from the weekend. We've barely mentioned Peko Bagnaia for uh, being nearly perfect. And guess what? I'm not going to mention him now either because my big winner was Maverick Vinales. A year to the day pretty much since his last podium in MotoGP and he was able to to get the podium finished this weekend. Obviously, he took advantage of what happened with Fabio and Aleish in front of him, but this was a really good ride for Maverick. And he was fast all the way through the weekend, which was good. He said coming into the weekend that maybe now he's learned how to fight. He's learned to be a bit more aggressive. And he showed a bit of that at the weekend. And that's only a good thing. We need to see Maverick fast. We need to see him where he's comfortable and happy and able to be one of the best riders in the world. Because talent's never been a question for Maverick. It's always been everything else. And uh, now we move on to Silverstone. I think he had his first podium there or there's first pole position there he's had a lot of good races there in the past so this is where he can really kick on between these kind of rounds where you go somewhere like silverstone aragon Mizano, those kind of rounds where hopefully for him he's really able to show that Aston isn't a one-off yeah no i mean he's been saying for a long time that really it, he he felt that the potential was there and he just needed it sort of to get everything right to be able to show it and he absolutely showed it uh, uh showed it here now maybe 
if uh, Fabio and Ole stay on the bike, uh, Maverick ends up fifth. But even then, it would have been fifth very close to the uh, uh, to the race winner. Um, and it was a very, very... It still would have been a fantastic performance. Um, what was most interesting was in the press conference afterwards, he was saying... Because throughout, he's been saying, you know, there's still a few bits on the bike. There's still a few places I need to improve, middle of the corner, that sort of thing. Um now he was saying, right, we just need to crack uh, qualifying. That's the only thing we need to do. Just need to find out how to crack qualifying. Once we've done that, then we then then I'll be able to fight. But the rest we can sort out. That to me is a is a huge huge step. And um, uh, I interviewed him at Barcelona, and there's such a difference in him. There's such a difference in his attitude and his mentality. Uh, he said one of the things which he's learned is to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. And um, that to me, I think is a is a huge change. And um, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think there's a lot to come. Neil obviously picked Alex Rins as his big loser from the weekend. But uh, what about you, Dave? Uh, for me, the big loser has to be Franco Morbidelli because his run of misery it continues, you know, crashing out at turn five, the same place as his teammate. Only uh, Franco was at the other end of the grid. Um, he can't qualify. He can't, he's not really showing any pace. Um, he looks miserable, um, and this was exactly the result which he didn't need going into the championship. It's just, it's, it's incomprehensible knowing how talented Morbidelli is that he is where he is, that he just cannot seem to, he's in a slump and there doesn't seem to be any way out. Yeah, and uh, I think it's going to be really interesting. Obviously, what happens for Franco going forward? Yamaha, after what happened last year with Vinales, there's no way that they're going to be dumping Franco, but there's also no way that Franco warrants holding on to that seat right now as well. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. And on the World Superbike show, myself, Charlie and uh, Gordo are going to be talking about Top Rack's test at Aragon as well recently. So uh, keep your keep your uh, eyes on your feed for that one in the future. And uh, for me, my big loser from the weekend, I'm going to go with just... Uh, Yamaha, Honda and Suzuki, Dave, because this was a disaster. We had Aprilia, KTM, Ducati all ahead of them in the finishing order, top seven spots. And this just looked terrible for Yamaha, Honda, Yamaha especially. Whenever you've got Fabio's crash, suddenly it shows just how much of an emperor with, with the, the new clothes they are. Because once Fabio is gone, they've got nothing. Honda, obviously, with no Mark Marquez this weekend, Paul was injured and uh, that was a, a really tough weekend for them we've already talked a little bit about Suzuki as well and uh, Rins's fortunes but this was just a disaster for all three manufacturers really yeah I mean it's interesting to see how the the balance of power has shifted you know the European the European method which is to spend a lot of time on developing the bike spend a lot of time on uh, bringing new parts working to actively improve the bike uh, is really paying off and the Japanese manufacturers have got a lot of catching up to do yeah it's still uh, always worth mentioning though how much success the Japanese manufacturers have at the end of the season and uh, it's still Fabio leading the championship so the Japanese method of putting all the eggs in one basket isn't a bad method either over the course of a full season but it's going to be interesting to see what happens yeah it depends on the basket doesn't it I mean if you've got a if you've got a really solid basket then uh, then there's the your eggs are pretty safe yeah, unfortunately for us in the Paddock Pass podcast, we're mostly just basket cases. But uh, <laughs> hopefully, Dave, the five-week break is going to give you a chance to recover, recuperate, and get ready for the second half of the season. 
yes, I am very, very, very much looking forward uh, to that. I think everyone was looking forward to that. Even Alicia Spargo at the end of um, uh, at the end of the week was saying, "I am so tired." Um, everyone is just really, um, yeah. We're very much looking forward to having a bit of a break and coming back. We've got seven more races, and um, the. the Aston really leaves you wanting more and Silverstone coming up next Silverstone again is a great track for great racing there's a lot of things wrong with Silverstone sort of you know it's difficult to it, it, photographers hate it the um uh, the it, it's difficult for fans in the terms of like you know the access all the rest of it um but it's going to be great racing one thing I just before we go um 104,000 people on Sunday um Aston is a fantastic event. They put a lot of effort into all of the events going on around it. I think this once again proves our uh, uh, our theory that um, MotoGP can sell out events as long as there is an event. If you're just going to put on a motorbike race, very few people are going to co- uh, are going to turn up except to see their favourite rider. And when their favourite rider retires, uh, then they're not going to turn up. But uh, I really do think that uh, the fact that so many people turn up, it felt like a proper asset. It felt like a real uh, uh, a real event, and the organisers were very happy. Um, so yeah, uh, it, it, the series is is in better health than we think, but it can't rely entirely on the racing. It needs a little bit more. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting as well dave like you said there when you look at what's happened over the course of the last few rounds we've had Mugello and catalonia sandwiched by the biggest crowd we ever had at le mans massive crowd at saxon ring and a really big crowd at the dutch dt as well so it's easy to always look at those low points and try and focus on them but really what we've seen over the course of this season is big crowds coming back a lot of people want to see races like you mentioned there is an event at Aston that makes it a bit special it's one of those events that I remember talking to Peter Baum about it and uh, Peter a former crew chief to lots of different world champions commentator for Dutch Eurosport alongside yourself Dave working as an engineer as well and Peter always said that for a lot of Dutch fans it's just the Dutch TT they just go to that they may not even be bike fans but they know that it's a big thing, it's a big event, it's a good atmosphere, and that's why they go to it, and that's what sells. And Silverstone, we've seen it in the past where there's the concerts, there's lots of different things going on, and uh, that makes a massive difference as well. So no doubt whenever we've got the British Grand Prix in five weeks' time, we're going to see a big crowd at Silverstone as well. And uh, hopefully we're able to see Adam back. He started his holidays a week early. Neil started his holidays half an hour early as well. So um, hopefully they'll be back for that as well. And we're obviously going to have a lot of content between now and Silverstone as well. And uh, we're trying to get a few interviews lined up with uh, a few people and uh, an extra couple of shows along the way as well. So keep your eyes onto your feed for that. And uh, as ever, Dave, big thanks for joining us on the show. We'll uh, give Neil a partial thanks for uh, taking a little <laughs> bit of time out of his busy schedule to make it on today. And then we're going to give a big thanks, to, as usual, to Fly Racing at Rental Street for uh, supporting the podcast. Also on uh, patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast, we've got some new offers out there for Patreon supporters as well. So if you want to sign on for the Paddock Insiders tier, $10 a month gets you all of our Paddock Notes shows through the course of a season. It also gets you a Paddock Pass podcast coffee mug. So you can fill that up with as much milky coffee as you want to annoy Dave. (laughs) And uh, we've also got our Paddock Pass team members tier as well. So on that tier, you're able to get a Zoom call with all of us on the podcast, ask us pretty much 
anything you want about World Superbikes, MotoGP, racing in general. And uh, you'll also get some T-shirts, a hoodie, and also the coffee mug as well. So we're trying to just bring some uh, additional extras to all of our Patreon supporters going forward. So a big thank you to everyone on Patreon for supporting us. And until next week on the Paddock Pass podcast, big thanks from myself, Steve English, David, Neil, and Adam and Jensen as well. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Exactly. <laughs> in, in fairness to F1, they do a great job of making the like little five-minute videos that has mm. all of the action from the entire race. And it looks like, fuck, that must have been a class race. And then you watch back and you realize, oh, no, that, that was, was all, all of the of action. The action <laughs> That's right. And you've got to sit through two hours. Yeah, exactly. And usually it's like fucking, you know, most of the clips are like, oh, look, someone has pitted. Oh, look, someone else has pitted.